The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Great to have everybody here tonight. As we kick off, what is tonight? Wednesday night? Yeah. It's it's the middle of the week. It's hump day. Wednesday night. We're, tonight we're talking about ghosts. One of the topics that we enjoy talking about the most. And we'll be talking with Cleet Keith tonight. He's a paranormal author. He's written a book recently. The book is called The Ghosts of Greystone, Beverly Hills. It's going to be an interesting discussion about a very uh, notoriously haunted mansion in California that Cleet has explored. He's gotten firsthand accounts about and he's put them all in this book. So we're going to have a good time talking about that. Of course, our, our our Twitch subscribers have to remember to renew their subscription every month if they, in fact, used Amazon Prime as the uh, as the source for the subscription. If you did that, you need to do it every month. Um, and I know that that's easily forgotten. So I want to remind you about that. Uh, and also YouTube. Find us on YouTube. JV Johnson. Subscribe there. I talked about what was happening with our subscriptions. I feel like we've been a bit shadow banned because of some of the conversations we've had. And uh, that's a bit troublesome and bothersome and worrisome, but we can overcome that. So um, please subscribe if you haven't done that on either or or both YouTube and Twitch. Find us on Facebook as well. So we'll get right to the program tonight. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will talk with Keith, excuse me, Cleet Keith tonight. He is the author of a book called Ghosts of Greystone. It's beyond reality, and we'll be right back. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Again, thank you for being here. Hey, a big thank you to Michelle in our uh, YouTube chat room for the Super Chats. Thank you so much for doing that, Michelle. It's very, very important, and we appreciate your support of the program. Not just uh, that, but also just being with us and listening and supporting our guests and all of that. We've got a great one for you tonight. As most of you know, the roots of this program, the roots of my paranormal uh, experience and professional life as the publisher of Tabs Para Magazine, as a radio host, as an investigator, as someone who's associated with Ghost Hunters Television Show, it's all about ghosts for us and we really enjoy the opportunity to talk about that particular topic and we have that opportunity tonight we have cleet keith with us tonight he's a paranormal author we're going to be talking about his book called ghosts of graystone cleet welcome to beyond reality it's great to have you with us tonight thank you so much Dave. We love being here yeah it's really exciting to talk to a fellow ghost hunting enthusiast someone who really finds this stuff not just fascinating but intriguing curious uh, mystical, all of the above, you know, all of these these words we use. How did you get your interest in these paranormal topics? Where did it start for you? Well, I, I, you know, it, it wasn't at Greystone. Uh, my, my parents had an, an event uh, a long time ago where my great uncle uh, was, uh, they lived up at Cambria in California, and uh, he and his wife lived there right by the ocean, and he got cancer. And one night he slipped out of bed and went and sat on the porch, looked out at the ocean, and shot himself in the head with a rifle. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so then not 
long after that, uh, his wife had a stroke. And so my parents had to go up to their house and clean it out and uh, sell it to get money for her care. And so when my dad and mom went up there, they were in the garage working, cleaning the place out, and they heard three knocks at the front door. My dad went out, and there was nobody there. And he came back and said to my mom, did, did you hear that? And she goes, yeah. He goes, there's nobody there. She goes, oh, okay, well, maybe it's the kids in the neighborhood. They kept cleaning, and then three more knocks. He went out. There was nobody there, and he said, let's get the heck out of here. Wow. So when he told me that story, I was like, really? I didn't even know about paranormal. I was probably 16, 17. I was like, really, that can happen? And and it wasn't until, there's one other story that happened as well, but then it wasn't until really I got to Greystone that I went, wow, this is the real deal here. So let's go back to this story that you just told us, because it's a powerful one. Um, I missed in the beginning of, of you telling this, how the, these folks, were, the, was these your, were these your grandparents? Is that what you said? It was my great uncle. So great it was uncle. my mom's uncle. Okay. And um, he was living with my mom's aunt. And he, he had cancer and uh, just sat on the porch looking at the ocean at night without her knowing, just slipped out to the porch. He'd had enough and put his, the gun, the rifle to his head and shot himself in the head. Wow. And then your parents uh, were there trying to, um, to help your mom's aunt. Uh, and, right. and they hear three knocks at the door, not once, but twice. Yeah. Yeah. So several, uh, two times it happened with the three knocks and then. Uh, after that, my, my mom really kind of had a sense of the paranormal. She could kind of mm-hmm. feel some of that. Mm-hmm. My dad didn't. So he didn't care. He goes, let's get out of here. She knew it was my uncle Wes, my great uncle Wes. My dad didn't care. He didn't want to know who it was. He wanted to get the hell out. So so <laughs> you kind of answered my next question a little bit here, but your mom had a sense of the paranormal. Your dad really had no interest in it. Did they have other experiences after that or before that even, uh, particularly as it relates to your great uncle? Yeah, no, they didn't, and, and and that was interesting as well because you would think that that would keep happening if he was that able to communicate, yeah. but they never did. And um, the only other thing I remember my mom talking about uh, was that when she was young, that that she used the Ouija board and things came through that she said were nobody knew about her father, who was a who was a director in Hollywood, and. Uh, it was bang on exactly oh, wow. uh, it, what was the truth, and it, it kind of scared her a little bit. But she she had a belief in that, though. So, uh, and I don't want to get too much into the to the weeds here, talking about this particular family situation. But I am curious. Um, they had these. Your parents had these experiences there. They left. They didn't really uh, look into it any further. Did did your your mom's aunt continue to live at the home, and was she cognizant of anything going on, or was she not in a state to be aware of that? Yeah, yeah, she wasn't in a state with that, J.B. What had happened was after my uncle, great-uncle killed himself, then she eventually had a stroke. Yeah. And so then they had to get her into a home and then take her home, which is right by the beach, and clean it out, sell it. So she wasn't there when there were any type of... that. She never mentioned anything mm-hmm. about her husband coming back to try to connect with her. And she wasn't really the type, when it was back to probably in the early 70s, she wasn't the type of woman that would have said anything about it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons that I find this story quite fascinating is there's been a lot of controversy and discussion, in fact, about what happens to the spirits of people who take their own life. And does it mm-hmm. does it does it create a different type of paranormal phenomena 
after the fact, you know, is there, and, and, and in some cases we hear stories about people coming back trying to not necessarily apologize, but try to make those they left behind feel a little more comfortable, even because it's such a, it's such a tragic situation. Um, so that's why I, I asked those additional questions to see if you ever got any more information or closure. It doesn't sound like you really had an opportunity to. No, no, not at all. Uh, but I, I agree with you on that with people who have committed suicide. And um, we have had several at this location at Greystone that have committed suicide there. So, And there, we have shadows and other things that may... I was talking to a friend of mine today, a ranger who was there today, with me, and uh, we were talking about what do you think that those black shadows are out by the Willow Pond, which is right outside my office uh, in the firehouse, and there was a man who shot himself in the head (laughs) again uh, in 2003, and uh, I was there. I went up and saw him still sitting there on the bench after he shot himself in the head, and uh, obviously he passed, and we've had... uh, And and, and actually, J.V., there was... uh, um, there was a story of a man that was walking down from the top of the parking lot past that willow pond, and he was going to use the restroom, which is right next to the willow pond, and he saw a guy sitting next to the pond he thought was feeding the fish and everything, and when he went to the restroom and came back out, he saw the ranger that was standing there, and uh, he said, what's going on here? He said, well, the guy just shot himself in the head over there. He goes, where? By where the guy was, was feeding the fish? He said, what are you talking about? And he looked over, and there it was cordoned off, and there was nobody there. And he said it was only within a matter of like 15 to 20 seconds that he went in and came back out, and he said it would be impossible for a guy to be sitting there yeah. and doing what he was doing and leaving. So he says, I think that was the guy who killed himself. Wow. Well, we'll certainly get into yeah. these stories a little bit more uh, as they relate to yeah. Greystone Mansion, but I want to talk a little bit more about your personal experience. You said after this particular set of uh, discussions with your parents, and this happened mm-hmm. with your parents, uh, you kind of didn't have anything else happen uh, until you started working at Greystone. There was, so there was a period there where there was really not much paranormal anything in your life. No, there was one story, and I'll make this quick for you, J.B. There was one story where... I went to a friend's house. I was working on a play. Um, she was an actress. She lived in Beverly Hills, oddly enough, and she invited me over, and I went to see her, and I was sitting in her place, and she started telling me about spirits within her apartment, mm-hmm. and I was not a believer, and she said, I, I, I awake, and there's a woman at the end of my bed all in white. I said, you got to be kidding me. I, did you, you know, did you soil yourself? I mean, what, yeah, that exactly. sounds so horribly frightening. <laughs> yeah. And she said, no, I, I just felt it was a very a positive presence. And I went, wow, man. And then she said, and then the piano started playing by itself one night. I said, come on, oh, come man. on. So oh, I'm man. doing jokes. And then she brings out the book called Seth Speaks. Do you know that book? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I've heard of this book. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a woman that uh, channels this spirit named Seth, who has all these prophetic things to say. I, I almost and, think, um, is, this, is this woman a contemporary, or is this an older book? I'm trying yeah. to remember, because I think I might have had her on the program. Uh, well, it's a woman, I... I I've I either know. had the I, author I on the program, or I've had somebody talking about... Okay, yeah, for sure. The author for sure. On the yeah, it's, it's really well known in the paranormal yeah, uh, field yeah. as far as channeling and all that stuff. Right. So, 
So she starts, she hands me this book, and she says, have you ever read this book? And I look at it, and, and it has a photo of, of Seth on the front, the woman, the woman portraying Seth as it's channeling through mm-hmm. her. And she looks really weird. And, and so, of course, I said to her, I said, it looks like she ate some bad shrimp. And she said to me, that's not funny. You should not make fun of the spirits. I said, I'm not, I'm just saying, look at her. She yeah. looks uh, in horrible shape. And there was a coffee table in front of us. They had like candles she lit and a candle with a, a glass housing that was really nice around it. And as I'm doing my stupid jokes and saying that I don't believe in all this stuff, suddenly the glass housing around that candle shatters. And I don't mean it just cracked. It like blew up. Oh, wow. And she stared at me and I looked at her and the look on her face was almost as frightening as the shattered, you know, glass. Yeah. And I grabbed my guitar and I ran out of the house. That was, that was the last paranormal thing that happened to me until I started at Greystone. I have to ask you about your friend a little bit. I mean, she sounds like she might have a bit of a one of the what we call this paranormal magnetism where uh, there are certain people that not only uh, seem to be able to accept it, as you said, she did not soil herself. She was actually saw this <laughs> lady in white as a warming presence. I think I would have been in your camp here if I'd... And, I, and I, I've done a lot of investigating, but you wake up and you just see that there. You're star. I mean, I'm startled. Uh, that's just the way it happens. Yeah. Um, but, but your friend here sounds like someone who uh, kind of has been living with this phenomenon all of her life and probably is a little bit... Um, accustomed to it, I guess. She was very accepting of the paranormal, so it didn't really freak her out that much. It was like, uh, and I, and I think because of who she was, she was a really sweet person, mm-hmm. and and I think that the spirits respected that and and reacted to her in that way. Um, that that they didn't want to hurt her or anything, and maybe they're even drawn by her kindness and um maybe that was what was happening there. I, I, I do know that there are a lot of people that work at Greystone uh, over the years. I was there 22 years that uh, have what I call the gift mm-hmm. and are able to feel, sense, see, smell, all those things. And when that is the case, then the spirits come out, man. They will come out. Once they know you have that aura and they can connect with you, they will they will step forward. And that's happened a lot. And, but your personal experiences here, you, you've just mm-hmm. given us two rather remarkable paranormal encounters that you've had. Or, or one you didn't have personally but you were told about. The other, you actually were in the presence of this glass shattering mm-hmm. in front mm-hmm. of you after you made a joke about a spirit. <laughs> which right? which is a little funny in itself um but you know uh, i would say you're probably uh, somewhat like me i feel like i'm not necessarily closed off to these occurrences i've had a lot of experiences but i don't feel like i've got a special sensitivity to any of it i feel like you know these things have to slap me in the face before i recognize they're in front of me that's exactly how i feel and it's, and, and so in in approaching the this book the way i did it was like Tell me your stories, and, and, and I'm going to ask some hard questions, because I've never had that happen to me, although it did later in the years. I had something happen at Greystone. But prior to that, and even after that, I still didn't really feel it actually happened, because you kind of get into this denial thing, a justification 
uh, aspect to it. And and that's exactly how I felt. I was always like, I, I know these are my friends, but I don't, I still don't believe it because I haven't seen it. Yeah. So it, it's tough for me to just go, really? Okay, I believe that when it hasn't happened to you ever or you're still kind of skeptical. So that's the, that's the approach I took in writing this anyway, so that it wasn't like, oh, yeah, let's talk about all the ghosts. It was like, prove to me your yeah. story is true. Yeah, uh, that's a healthy approach, I think. I think, if, you know, there, mm-hmm. there are people who are willing to believe anything and everything. And while we all have a bit of a uh, an optimism that these things are true and that we may have our own experience at some time, at least those of us who are in the business of talking and investigating these phenomena, um, you know, you have to, if, if you believe everything and you, and you assume everything is paranormal, um, that doesn't do us any good either. That's not a, not a healthy way to investigate anything. Um, what do you think, and, and, and we're going to get to the Greystone stuff specifically here in just a few minutes, but as you've written about these uh, experiences that people have had at Greystone, if you look more into this paranormal phenomena, um, do you, have you come to any conclusions as to what we're actually talking about here? We use the word ghost pretty freely, but not anybody can with any certainty tell us what a ghost is. Have you come to any least opinions on that question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, from my experience, um, I, I know for a fact that, that spirits, uh, oftentimes when there is an, uh, if it's a car crash or a murder or things like that, I truly believe they just step out of the body and they're there. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that they still exist only on the, the energy has just transferred to a different spirit. So if instead of being in the hard body, Basically, they're they're on uh, a different type of um, spiritual level. That uh, everything is is the same. You just can't see their body, and it 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 really plays out at that location because there are apparitions, all that stuff. But I truly believe that uh, you can just and and the the interesting thing for me, JV, is. Why do some stay and why do some go? What, there, there's another, if I can tell you a real quick story, and, and, and I won't give out the name of this actor, but um, my mother was an actress and she was really ill. She had Parkinson's and she was at the motion picture television front home in, in Woodland Hills. Okay. And she was there for, for a while with Parkinson's and she was rooming with another woman named, I think it was Betty. And Betty's son is a very famous actor. And so uh, suddenly he showed up one day, and I went, oh, hey, my mom's with your mom in that room. And we chatted a little bit, became friends. And and then um, over months, uh, we got to know each other. And I showed up one day, and all the nurses were bustling around and moving. And, and I was going, like, what's going on? They said, well, uh, We'll just say his name is Brian. Brian's mom just died and went, oh, my God. Does he know? Did you call him? He said, yeah, he's on his way. And the nurse at the, at the center of the desk said, was looking at me, and she had a strange look at her face. I go, what, what's wrong? She goes, the phone keeps ringing from Betty's bed. Ooh. Like she's calling from her bed. Oh, and man. I said, well, you know what that is, don't you? And she goes, no, 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 don't, don't. Don't do that. Don't say that to me. I said, I'm just, I'm just saying that it's, it's Betty. She's still here. I don't want to hear that. Please, please don't. No, 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 no. I don't want to hear that. I said, okay, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
I walked into that room and I said, Betty, honey, I can't see you, but you've passed. So if you look in the corner of the room and you look for that light and you go toward that light, it's going to take you where you're supposed to go, honey. So you, you, you take off now, okay? And you don't have to be here anymore. And that phone never rang again. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So, that, so that she transferred. Crazy. She was still there, just not in the body. That's that's amazing, and and I also am really impressed at, at the way you handled that. Had you been doing a lot of that type of work at that point, or uh, was it still new to you? I, I read, I read a lot, mm-hmm. and and I do enjoy a lot of these books. That that you know, and, and and I've watched a lot of the Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures, Dead Files. All those things are part of me now because. Uh, I was getting ready to write this book, and I just wanted to be really familiar with it, but I saw enough to know that there are certain ways I think you handle people who have passed who may not know that they've passed, right. which is actually pretty common. Right. Yeah, that that's an amazing, amazing story, and it's really a, a great illustration of, of and, and a great way to to explain what the process is and what we think um, ghostly or, or spirit activity can uh-huh. can be. I mean, there are other people that will say, you know, this is an interdimensional thing. This is a time slip thing. This right. is, I, I, you know, I have trouble going down those roads. I love to hear the discussion because I'm trying to keep an open uh-huh. mind about it. But I really, I really think that what we're talking about here is some form of the human soul leaving the body and, and going to its next next existence, whatever that happens to be. I, t- I totally believe that. And 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 one other story that I'll tell you very briefly is. I went into our break room inside the mansion, which is where a woman hung herself, oddly enough. So I was in there one morning, and I took out my phone, and I said, why are you still here? Because things have been happening in that room, like literally a a painting, like a, a glass painting that was up on a shelf, flew off in front of this ranger, and it just freaked the hell, freaked him out. So um, I went in days later and said, why are you still here? Is is it because you're afraid to find out what you're going to see when you cross over to the other side? However you've dealt with your life, are you afraid to find out how you'll be treated? And when I played that back and I finished that, I heard, yes. Mm. So, so it was a very Catholic family and there were a lot of things going on in that household, uh, murder, suicides, rapes and things that took place. And uh, I think this one spirit that had passed over was afraid to find out what was going to happen when he met his maker, if indeed he was going to. So, Yeah. Um, a couple of questions flowing through our chat room here that I, I want to ask before they scroll out of my view. Um Michelle Michelle wants to know if it's true that a living person has to help a spirit pass over to the, to the light. And um and I think we kind of just illustrated how that can happen, but I'm not so sure that it has to happen. Cleet, do you have an opinion on that? No, I I and Michelle, it does it does not have to be that way. I think remember as you're living and and you for whatever your religious purposes are or whatever you've looked up in books and television all that stuff, uh when you pass from what I've studied for all these years, um, if you're afraid to go to the other side, to the light, then you're probably going to be in the middle section here, which is what most of these people are, these spirits are. Um, I think most people, through their religion, through their chats with 
uh, priest or whomever or family members are pretty much geared to go, I know where I'm going, and they know that when they pass out of the body, I'm going to be going to X, whatever that may be. And I truly believe that what you choose to believe in, whatever God you believe is, is uh, in your life, that will be there for you because that's what will help you make that transfer to the other side. We're talking tonight with Cleet Keith. He's the author of a book called Ghosts of Greystone. And uh, we're going to get into some of the details here about uh, some of the reports of paranormal activity that have occurred at this particular mansion. But before we do, how did you become familiar with Greystone? What was your introduction to the place? Um, I, I was I did a lot of acting, and one time uh, I was working on a, one of the worst movies ever made. And they said, um, "They said I said where are you? this is 1994, and I said where are you shooting today? And they set up a Greystone. I said, what is that? They said, oh, it's a mansion. It's a mansion up there. We're shoot. I said, oh, okay. I had no clue what it was about. And then, well, little did I know, five years later, I would be hired by the city to work there. And it was like, uh, it, it, once I started working for the city, somebody mentioned to me that, are you aware that this place is haunted? And I went, no, seriously? And they go, yeah. And I said, no, I'm not aware of that. I, I had no clue. No clue. Are you going to tell us what the worst movie ever made was that you were involved in? Because it's probably one of my favorites. I happen to like what some people I, I, consider I to be it. bad movies. <laughs> okay, yes, I'll tell you, of course. But I, I doubt you, you like this film. And, and there's a whole thing how I got involved with it and everything. But it, it's, it was called Cabin Boy. Cabin Boy. Yeah, that's not one I'm Thank familiar you. with. Thank you, I... JV. Thank you. That <laughs> it concludes this interview. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It was. It's if you look it up, and I, I don't want you to. Whoever's listening to this, don't do it. It's, it's a waste of time. But uh, it was with Chris Elliott. Oh yeah, of course. Remember Chris? Uh, yeah. Chris, Chris Elliott uh, had yeah. kind of a resurgent yeah. resurgence on Schitt's Creek. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So he did. He did this movie with a friend of his, Adam Resnick, who who ended up having to direct it. Wasn't going to be a. It was going to be a Tim Burton movie. He pulled out and asked Adam, who wrote the film, to direct it. He's never directed anything. He goes, I don't want to direct it. He goes, well, you got to do it. So it was one of those, and it was kind of chaotic and a little wacky, i got to tell you. And it came up, if you look it up, I, 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 the last time I saw it was one of the worst films ever made. I don't. I, well, I, I can't. I can't offer you any opinion, Cleet. I haven't seen it, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm more curious now than I would have been if you didn't spin this tale oh, about how God. bad it was. Now I'm really curious. Um, so, so yeah. you you actually filmed there. You end up uh, several years later getting uh, hired to work there. What was your, what's your role? Are you still working there? I have uh, two days left. Oh wow! Okay. Enough. What's yeah, your what? I, I, after twenty two years? Oh yeah. man! What's your role been there? What what's your title? I, I've done I've done several things for the city of Beverly Hills, and one was to help with logistics on events. Meaning they they would do a uh, until the COVID came up, they would do, for forty some years they would do uh, an art show twice a year, which is on Santa Monica near the Beverly Hills sign, and it brings in 40,000 people. It's a huge undertaking, and I was heading up the logistics for that and several other events, but I also did started morphing more into becoming a ranger and helping the ranger program. So I would, uh, when there was filming up at Greystone, 
uh, I would put on a uniform and work with the Rangers on that. If there were huge events, whatever, they would say, would you work? I said, yeah, yeah. So I'd just throw on the uniform and start working with them. And I, I started doing that more and more as the years went on. Tell us about the history of this particular property. Um, it's a striking building, obviously. It's a beautiful place. Uh, who built it? How, how did it get its origin? Yeah, so back in the early, what was the late 1800s, early 1900s, Edward L. Doheny uh, came from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Uh, coming, he came to L.A. looking for gold and ended up getting involved in oil. And he, uh, he and his friend Charles Canfield... Uh, bought a small little plot near downtown, and they dug a hole by hand and pick 155 feet down. That alone is amazing, right? Yeah, that's, that's 15 a, stories. That's basically. crazy, yeah. Right? And they, they, they got nothing. So they went out and they found a eucalyptus tree that was straight as an arrow, 60-foot eucalyptus tree, cut it down, made the end of it like a, a drill bit, dropped it down in there, and I don't know how they did this, but they, in essence, drilled down 460 feet. It's 46 stories. Wow. And, and hit, gold, hit, hit oil. And then uh, he started making a lot of money from that, went down to Mexico and hit a 600-foot geyser and became a billionaire overnight. So then at that time, it was the Rockefellers and the Doheny's were the oil oil barons of the United States. Yeah. At that time, he came back. He bought 429 acres, among other things, but he bought 429 acres, which turned out to be in the Beverly Hills area. And of that 429 acres, he gave his son, Ned, who had a wife and five kids, he gave them a 12.58 parcel of land, acre of land, mm-hmm. and in which uh, Ned then built Greystone. Okay, so what was the name of of the uh, of the oil baron? His name was Edward Lawrence Doheny. So out here, you're in New York, is that right, JV? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So out here, there's Doheny Road, Doheny Drive, Doheny. which is relatively well known, named after the family. There's also Doheny Beach down south, uh, in in Southern California. So uh, they're very well known. They they had billions when a penny meant something. Yeah. Uh, so. The Doheny family. So Ed did not build Greystone. It was actually his son that built his this, son, this fantastic yeah, yeah. structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 once it was built, it became it was known as the Hearst Castle of Southern California. Yeah, yeah. And um, so Ned Ned built it. Who who designed it? Is it, is there anything um, particularly interesting about the person who designed this? Mansion? Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was Gordon B. Kaufman, and he designed uh, the L.A. Times building in Los Angeles, but he also was involved with the Hoover Dam. So he, he was uh, one of the architects of the Hoover Dam, in which, you know, is steel-reinforced concrete, that dam. And with that in mind, he used those uh, same properties to build Greystone, which is a poured concrete uh, reinforced steel concrete uh, building, uh, which is 46,000 square feet, wow. 55 rooms, uh, <laughs> 67 altogether if you, if you count the walk-in closets. So along with a family, servant's wing, recreation wing, a hidden bar, the bowling alley that was in There Will Be Blood, if you ever saw that movie, 
uh, it, at the end of the film, there's a bowling alley scene with Daniel Day-Lewis, and that is uh, located also at Greystone. So uh, you gave us an approximate, but what year was the was it built? It was, they started, think about this, J.B., they started it in Fe- February 15th of 1927, and the family was able to move in in September of 1928. You can't even get, it, that's it, like a year, you can't even get permits now. in in that amount of time, and they had built this home, which cost $1.2 million at that time, just the mansion itself. The the mansion and the property altogether was $3.0 million, which today that equals about $46 million today. Wow. Um, So the structure is uh, uh, built, it's moved in to by the family in September of 1928. Um, Yeah. You, uh, I don't know how much of the history you've you've been able to gather, but I imagine you've looked at a lot of it. Does the paranormal activity start immediately, or does it come later? See, this is a this is a great question, JB, because um, it's always been my quandary uh, in trying to figure out: did was there paranormal activity? Because you're talking about an area in which. There had to be, it was Mexican land at one point. It was, mm-hmm. it was probably Indian land at one point. So, and, and there, there is a, there's, uh, there's two stories in there in, in the book about literally horses on the property that are not real. So, and in a, in a Mexican, uh, like cowboy on a horse, and it's like, was that there prior to the murder-suicide that took place? Right. Or did that prompt the 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 activity that has taken place there that I don't know but I do believe and, and I've talked to several really great psychics Chris Fleming I don't know if you know who he is I know Chris real um, well yep I know him very well okay so so he came out and, and he and I hung out with uh, another woman who was psychic and two other people and he was saying he was mentioning also that it, it might have been that the the there was there was a portal within the home. And was that portal opened by the murder-suicide? We don't know. But there is a portal, and Peter James, who was another famous psychic back in the day, he came into the house one day, and he pointed at the exact same place that Chris pointed to and said, do you know you have a portal here? So I don't know if the murder-suicide prompted the portal to open and then prompted all these other horrible things that took place in the house, or... Did the murder-suicide, was that prompted by yeah. spirits that had been there prior to them moving in? Yeah, that's that's a great point as well. We often find that dilemma. Um, even the Amityville story, the Amityville house, uh, has, mm-hmm. it, it has that same dilemma attached to it. Did the tragedy create the paranormal activity that was reported there, or was there something going on that caused the tragedy to occur and just perpetuated it? And it's this, you know, chicken and egg situation where some people believe that there is some dark force that's already there that creates a tragic, tragic situation that results in more hauntings. Now, you've said, you mentioned murder-suicide a couple of times here in relationship to this house. Um, I think we're going to need to tell this story. But before we tell the story, the family moves in in, in 1928. Um, is there anything remarkable about how them living there up until the point of this uh, murder-suicide? No, just that the fact that it was the place to be in Hollywood and everywhere. Everybody knew about the house, wanted to get inside, 
and it, they had parties, and it was a really special home. So I don't think anything, I don't think it was haunted that time. I just don't think there was any activity at that time. So, so maybe it, yeah, go ahead. No, just, no it's okay. I, I, I just want to um, take us up to the point where this tragedy occurs. Set the stage for mm-hmm. us. Tell us how this, the, the lead-up to this uh, event was, and then tell us what happened. Okay. So th- there was a thing uh, back in the day called the Teapot Dome Scandal, and, and, and this was in uh, the, the 1920s and uh, even went in, I think, into the early 30s. And it was the Teapot Dome Scandal was there there. Uh, oil reserves still in, in, in the United States in, in Wyoming, Teapot Dome, Wyoming. And then there are also Ilk Hills and Buena Vista Naval Reserves in California. Edward L. Doheny and this other man named Harry Sinclair, they were friends with Albert Fall, who became the Secretary of the Interior in the Harding, Harding administration. Once uh, Albert Fall got in, he basically allowed... Uh, let's let's just talk about uh, Lawrence Doheny. He allowed him to have access to the Elk Hills and the um, Buena Vista oil reserves. That because he was they were he were, they were friends. Right. That alone netted uh, uh, E. L. Doheny netted him a hundred million dollars right there with all the stuff he did with that oil. So it was illegal. It wasn't a bidding thing where other companies can come in and bid and see who has the best bid to get, to have access to those oil fields. He just gave it to them. Uh, with that being said, Edward L. Doheny sent his son, Ned, and Ned's secretary, Hugh Plunkett, to New York to get out $100,000, which back then, a penny meant something. It's a lot of money. Put it in a satchel and bring it to Albert Fall as a loan, quote, as a mm-hmm. gift. Mm-hmm. Um, they, suddenly, Albert had a lavish lifestyle. It was found out. He was uh, prosecuted because they knew something had taken place. And he was put into prison for a year um, for having taken that money. Now they wanted to go after Doheny, but they felt that the best way to go to Doheny was through his son, and the secretary that delivered the money. So now we start ramping up the uh, the feelings that that Hugh was having. He was very frightened about going to trial. He wasn't a real strong fellow. And Hugh was, was the secretary. Asleep. Hugh was the secretary. He was was Ned's secretary. Okay. They've been friends since they were like in their teens, mm-hmm. and Ned just brought him along, and so he became his his secretary, and, and kind of managed Greystone, the land and everything, and, and a lot of the finances. So that's why he went back with him to New York to handle the finances. And um, so once the, the word was out that they're going to try to go after Ned and Hugh, then they started having problems with each other because Hugh was afraid. This is what I have researched. He was afraid that um, he was going to be the left holding the, yeah, the, the fall satchel. guy yeah the fall guy yeah yeah well that's what i was going to say that by the way after after all this took place um the the murder of the suicide then they went after uh the elder doheny in a trial and they acquitted him mm-hmm. so you have the man who gave albert fall the money is acquitted albert who took the money is in jail and that's where the term the fall guy came from oh okay 
Yeah, tr- truly came from that. Wow. So uh, that being said, uh, uh, Hugh showed up one night to talk to Ned. This is what has been written, and we talked about and I did a lot of research with uh, a man named Clark Fogg, who's a forensic guy. He worked for the city of Beverly Hills. And he showed up, wanted to talk to, to Ned. They, they, they think he went in and got a gun out of the gun room. There's a room called the gun room inside the mansion. Went down and started having a conversation with Ned. And they argued they'd been drinking. And Ned was shot in the head in the temple, and so was Hugh. So the huge question here, J.B., is who shot whom first? Yeah. And and how is it that they're both shot almost in the same place in the temple? So if Hugh's in there waving the gun and accidentally it goes off, it's pretty coincidental that it hit in the perfect spot in the temple of Ned. Right. Same with with. Ned, if Ned Ned has a gun and he's going to approach Hugh and Hugh's going to allow him to put it right to his head and shoot him in the temple, it doesn't really make sense. And there's also the other aspect of that they they may have had a relationship. Yeah, oh, so, uh, I was just going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there there have been uh, not only rumors, but I, I've heard it from another source that they they had a connection that they they were uh, together and. And was then Lucy, Ned's wife, was she involved with this? Did she catch them together? Was she uh, angry about the whole situation that all the money was going to be lost through these trials, and she got upset and shot one of them, and then then the other one took the gun and killed himself? Nobody knows, and because that happened that one night, February 16th, 1929, once that happened, it was huge all over the United States, and within 24 hours, it was shut down. It was not talked about again because billionaire family, they went to the police and said, shut it down. They said, you got it. So nobody ever really knew. But I will say this, JB, that it's very odd that Ned is not buried with Edward, his dad, in the same plot, same area of the cemetery. He's in his own section, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. And Hugh is like 30 yards downhill from, from Ned. Well, if I kill you, I doubt your family would say, put Cleet about 30 yards away from the JV. Will you do that for me? It, it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So I, I think what might have taken place is that a Catholic family, uh, if that being the case, and he committed suicide by having shot his friend and went, oh, my God, what have I done? And he shoots himself, which is a sin in the Catholic religion. So maybe they didn't bury him in the family plot area because of that. So hard to tell. I have so many questions, and I don't want to take you off track here because this is an amazing story. But talking about you know the the, the possibilities of how this occurred, could it have been that they both realized that there maybe they had a relationship? I don't know, but what, regardless of whether they did or not, that this this scandal could completely ruin both of them, and they both took their own lives one at a time. Uh, it, it's very possible. Um, I just, from what I've compiled and read about and everything and, and talking to Clark, the forensic uh, guy, um, it, it, it's the trial they think set everybody off. Yeah. It became such a, a, a boiler point that, that they think that is just, it, 
ramped everything up to where it hit ahead a and and uh, everybody snapped. But but you could be right. Who yeah. knows? They could they could say you know what we're not going to get out of this. Let's just let's do it together. Yeah, um, because and, they're still in there. By the way, they're still in the house. And you said oh, sorry, you, you said that this occurred. This this murder suicide, double suicide, whatever it was, occurred mm-hmm. on February sixteenth, nineteen twenty nine. Yes. So they mm-hmm. they had only been living in that home for a few months. Four months. Uh, yeah, he had been in there four months. Wow. Yeah, had this amazing, amazing home, and he was there four months, and and, and was found dead. So were, were there any um, re- uh, records that you could find related to an autopsy or police reports that determine whether or not there were powder burns on either of the men, uh, yeah. you know, any yeah. of that stuff? Yeah, so I, I did all that research, and, and the reason I was able to do it was because of Clark Fogg, who is, uh, he's not retired, but he, he allowed me access into downtown files, and we couldn't find anything, and he said he had seen the file before on Med, and all it said basically was that he passed. There was nothing about a murder-suicide. It was nothing about how he passed. It was just he passed. He died on this night. And so that says to me, uh, in essence, a cover-up, I think. Yeah. But uh, somebody else had approached me recently and said, how do I find those files? I said, you won't find the files. Because there are no files regarding what exactly took place that night. In fact, Mrs. Doheny, Lucy Doheny, Ned's wife, she uh, uh, said that she thought uh, two chairs had tipped over. That's what she heard in the house, that she was in the living room, and it sounded like two chairs tipped over. Well, when they showed that diagram in the Times, uh, L.A. Times, uh, they put the living room at the furthest end of the east end of the house. It's literally next door to what we call the murder room. So there, there were cover-ups all over the place. I think um, there was probably a, a time, you know, you didn't have, obviously, the Internet, and, and you didn't have television. You you know barely had radio at that point. So most of the uh, information was uh, reported through newspapers or word of mouth. And it was probably a little easier to control those media uh, than it would be today, mm-hmm. you think? Yeah, absolutely, and and that's what I tell everybody when I when I've talked about these stories. Look, there was no CNN, there there was no uh, internet whatsoever, social media. So anything, any kind of conversation you received, like you said, radio or paper, it it could be controlled. And and I think that's exactly what Lucy did, I, and maybe even the father as well, saying, "No, I don't want anything out. It's over with. It's done. Pay him off. I don't care." So, and it was. It was done. So after the murder, suicide, double suicide, double murder, whatever it was, after this occurs and the dust settles from all that, what happens to the house? Does the does the widow um, continue to live there? Does the family still uh, does continue to live there for a while after that point? Yes, she stayed in that home until 1955. The children grew up and moved out, but she stayed in the home. She she married the financial advisor uh, two years after that that the murder suicide. And they lived inside Greystone until 1955. She ended up selling Greystone to Henry Crown, who was involved in building a, a, the Empire State Building. And he had most of his uh, um, companies and things were in Chicago. So they thought he was going to move into the mansion. And they, the rumor was his wife said, hell no, I'm not going in that mansion. So. <laughs> 
he, because he of what it, because of what happened there. Is that what you're saying? She didn't want to move in there because yeah. of the okay. Well, that's what they say. She said. Um, he said it was because his financial dealings were in, in Chicago. So he did not come out. He rented the uh, mansion out uh, till '65, from '55 to '65, for filming, and allowed that to take uh. place. And then in 1969, um, the, the the city had purchased the uh, the mansion, and and they allowed AFI, American Film Institute, to move in and be inside there and use it as their their um, school um, from 69 to 82. And they paid a dollar a year, and they, they had access to Greystone. And then, then they were out, and uh, it became a, a historic park. It became a, histor- a historic park owned by the city? City of Beverly Hills, yeah. yeah. Now it's a historic park in the city of Beverly Hills, and that kind of that kind of brings us almost current. So it's been a historic park. It's like it's a it's it's a is it a museum? Is it a, is can people go tour it? Is that how it works? You can go visit the grounds. Uh, you can't go inside the mansion um, if, if they have. Sometimes there, there's a group called the Friends of Greystone, and they'll do uh, tours. So you have docent tours where you walk in and you can walk. Uh, inside the mansion, look at the rooms. There are docents within the rooms. They've done that before. They've done uh, a design show in the house where designers pick a room and design it. They've done, uh, they had a car show there at one point where you could go inside the house as well. Um, but on an overall basis, the mansion is closed. So what shape is it in? I mean, obviously it was, it started out absolutely gorgeous, beautiful. I'm sure it was ornate inside. I'm sure it was amazing. Uh, has it been able to retain that beauty all these years? No, and, and it fell in, right after uh, it was given away to or sold to Henry Crown, and he let the film companies come in. They mm-hmm. they basically hammered the place, and they yeah. uh, they did. Uh, there that. was a, a film, uh, the disorderly orderly with Jerry Lewis in 1964. Yeah, they came in, and they want if you see if you ever want to watch and see what Greystone used to look like, uh-huh. rent that movie, and it'll show you uh, the what looks like a park up above. The, the area of the mansion, uh, which is now a parking lot, and underneath that parking lot is a 19 million gallon water reserve. That's why the city bought the property, really, mm-hmm. to put a water reserve up at the top of the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see the mansion the way it used to look, but they took the mansion, wanted to make it the disorderly orderly was a hospital, about a, Jerry Lewis in a hospital. And so they painted all the wood. Oh, no. And yeah, it's saying, don't worry, the, the paint comes off. It's not a problem. Oh, you know, no. film companies are ruthless. And they couldn't get the paint off, so they sandblasted it. Oh. So it, it changed it forever. Um, and when uh, American Film Institute were in there, they, they took a lot of stuff. It wasn't a, a historic site at that point. They were just taking all the, you know, the, the doorknobs and the wind, all the stuff that's in there. Or, or they were building things inside the living room, right on that wood floor. Oh, they're no. building uh, a, a, a screen to watch movies and all that stuff. They, they kind of brutalized the whole location. I have I, that is such a shame. It's such a tragedy in itself. Um, I'm such a fan of these old, particularly Gilded Age homes, which so much craftsmanship yeah. and, and uh, you know architectural mm. integrity and so many beautiful uh, things are put into those homes. I've owned a couple of them myself, and uh, mm. 
I just, it's such a tragedy when we lose something like that. You, you can never get it back. You can't replace that. But we're going to, I'm going to, I'm already looking at the clock here. We're going to find ourselves short on time. We haven't even gotten to the paranormal okay. activity. So we're going to have to move along here. <laughs> Do you think that the tragedy with Ned and Hugh is the, is the gasoline, if you will, uh, on the fire of paranormal activity in this particular place? Yes. Yes, I do. And and the reason I say that is not only do they have several people say, like I said before, have they think it opened a portal, but I, I have recordings where it's uh, gunshots inside the house. And it, it, not something that sounds like a gunshot, it's gunshots. And I believe that with the paranormal activity that took place uh, uh, right after, I'm guessing, you know, pretty close after Ned and Hugh mm-hmm. uh, died, mm-hmm. um, I think because the house is, sur- you have a poured concrete home, and it's surrounded by limestone, Indiana limestone, which makes the walls three feet thick. Oh, wow. Heat. And it's a fortress. And, and Yeah, exactly. And, and limestone, as you know, is a conductor of energy. That's right. And I think that night, the energy that came out of that murder-suicide or the double murder or the double suicide is still imprinted within these walls. And you can put your recorder in, and I've done it hundreds of times, JV, and I've recorded gunshots and a host of other things that are incredible. And, and every night, every time I put it in there, I get these sounds. Yeah, you've um, you've actually provided me with some of those. If we have time, we'll try to play a couple. But uh, start ta- start telling us about how you realized or you recognized that there was this activity going on there and what you started to do to collect information about it. Okay, so when I first started working there, literally the first month, I was told that Sprite was shooting a commercial up at the mansion. I went, oh, I want to see what it's like shooting up at the mansion. So I ended up running up there to the West Court to see what was going on. And as I got up there, a guy ran out of the house screaming and swearing and just ran away. And I went up to the, one of the rangers. I said, what was that about? And he told me that the, they've been treating the house horribly. It, it, again, it was it's a beautiful home, and they're throwing cables on the ground and, and, and uh, on the floors and everything and ruining everything. And this guy was upstairs, the second floor landing, right off there in, in one of the, might, might have been Patrick's bedroom, one of the son's bedrooms, and he was getting all the cables together, wrapping them up, putting them in crates. And he said one of the crates just went whew, right across the room in front of him oh. and flipped him out. And he just ran out and just said, F this place, I'm done, I can't do this, i got to get out of here. And so that's when I went, uh-oh, what's going on here? So from that time on, I was very curious about what was taking place. And a, and a very good friend of mine, Steve Clark, who became uh, one of the senior rangers there, and a friend for 20 years, his first thing that he told me, because he wanted to confide in me, was he closed everything up, he put the alarm on, he walked out, and one of the windows were open the servant's room, which happens to be the room in which the woman hung herself. He didn't know that. And he went back in, turned off the alarm, went up there, closed the windows, ratcheted it shut, came back, turned on the alarm, walked out, and the window was open again. Oh, wow. And he said, I'm not, I'm not going back in. I don't think you've told us so, the story. You've mentioned that the woman hung herself. What, what, what's the story behind that? Well, um, I won't get way into it, but what I'll tell you is that she was... Uh, what we have learned was that she was pregnant. She got pregnant by someone on that property. Okay. And again, Catholic household, and it was a sin. And 
she felt the only way out was to hang herself. And she did it in that room. And we have, do you know who Lisa Williams is? Uh, Lisa. She's a British psychic. Yes, I do. Yes, I absolutely do. Really good. Really mm-hmm. good. She, she came to Greystone one night and she did a walkthrough for her show. And uh, boy, did she pick up on that. She was bang on with that. She kept, she said, my stomach hurts, my stomach hurts. And everybody in the crew, and I said, well, I don't know what that's about. And they moved on. And when they took a break, I said, Lisa, I took her outside. I said, you're bang on with that. One of the women where you're talking about was pregnant and she hung herself. She goes, oh my God, I've been looking at her in the window all night. Do you see her? I said, I don't. And she said, she's right there. She's waving at me, but that's okay. That makes sense then. So uh, that's what happened. Do she we do we know who this woman was? Do you have that historic information? Um, and how much of oh. what you've just told us about this woman is a result of paranormal investigating versus, you know, police records or something? Right, right. So um, we were quite certain, like, like um, we, we were, these stories, a lot of these stories were passed down to us, and some we thought were, were just ranger legend. Mm-hmm. And th- there was a, there's another story of a woman who we were told slit her wrists in the meat locker, which is upstairs in the second floor wing, and killed herself in the meat locker. And so we go, that's pretty dramatic, and, you know, but that's what they told us, whatever. Right. And so I, I was not going to put it in, in the book. And then uh, a woman showed up one day to talk and saw Steve Clark, the ranger, and said, can, can anybody go inside? He said, no, it's closed to the public. She goes, oh, oh, because my, my grandmother's friend uh, slit her wrist in the meat locker. Oh. And we're like, oh, my God, that's real? <laughs> and she said, yes. Oh, honey, yes, it's real. So... It's things like that. Um, there was another ranger that was shoved down the stairs and nearly died, could have broken her neck, and she quit that day. And we thought that was a legend until this guy shows up and talks to Steve and says, no, I was, I was a ranger, and I was with her that day. She just flew past me. And he's now a DA in, in, a, in a county out here, which I can't say, but... Uh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't interview with me. He wouldn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, um, but th- that's how we're finding out is really uh, talking to people, and they're saying, "Oh no, no, wait! I know somebody who was there." So you basically were kind of collecting some of the folklore of the of the house, and then you started mm-hmm. to get corroborating information and corroborating testimony that uh, made you recognize, "Hey, this is more than just folklore. This this is something that actually has some basis in in history." Yes. Yes, exactly. A- along with the fact that um, I-, I, because I knew a lot of these uh, stories about spirits and ghosts, then I decided to, one night, I woke up at three in the morning and I thought, you know what, I'm going to write down, I used to give tours every once in a while to people who would show up just just on the whim. They'd show up like a family from Australia, like these two girls from Norway, and I'd say, come on, I'll take you in. And they'd be so excited. And I'd give them a tour and I'd start talking about the paranormal. So I thought, why don't I just write those stories down? Because they're kind of interesting about all my friends who had these things happen to them that I know are real. And then it became a thing of those friends saying, well, then you have to talk to Glenn because he had something crazy. Oh, who's Glenn? Well, he used to be, then I would call and it became 80 plus people, separate people that had stories that were in, that were tr- all true, all eyewitness stories, mostly them happening to them, 
which became almost 300 stories wow. of that location. It mansion inside and mansion outside as well on the property. How, how, how did you uh, determine where most of the activity was? Is it mostly external or is it in a house? Well, there are external things that happen that uh, in, in the uh, interviews. Uh, external, definitely outside, but it's usually nighttime or early, early morning when it's like 5, 6. Um, uh, inside the mansion, we've had both during the day, for sure. There's a little girl in the mansion. We've had her, she's been seen like five times. And that's always, it's always been mostly during the day, along with a, a, a myriad of other uh, apparitions of, we think, Lucy standing there. You could see through her, a guy coming down the stairs with no legs, mm-hmm. floating down the stairs. It, it's, it's mostly during the evening, but it doesn't mean you're not going to see something during the day. I'm going to go back to a question that uh, went through the chat room a little while ago because you kind of touched on it here. Um, the question was related to uh, ghostly activity. Why does it seem to happen mostly at night? Are you a believer that most paranormal phenomena as it relates to spirits or ghosts happens at night? And is that the experience that you've witnessed or or collected information about as it relates to Greystone? Yeah, it is. And and the, from what I've been told and what I've researched, the reason it happens at night is the atmosphere on, on the planet, literally at night, changes. So you have a different energy that takes place at night than you have during the day. And it's, it's more uh, along the lines of what spirits like to manifest. And plus, it's less people um, that would be in their way. And... and um, We've had that many times at, at Greystone where uh, I've, we've had an event and people are, are closing up and everything. And because that event has ramped up the energy within the house and it's in the evening, sometimes even with rain and what have you, we'll ramp it up too, that the spirits will come out and they will connect or uh, scare you or whatever they want to do. They want to get you out of the house mostly. They just want you out of their home. And in, in JV, it's like if, 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 uh, we had, we had a guy that came in and he had a, he was junked. He had an attachment from a spirit within the mansion mm-hmm. and he did some crazy things after he left. And then in two weeks it went away. And, and I always say if uh, a spirit, it, well, us going into the mansion is like us Let's say the spirits came home with us and they came into our house. If you had a spirit in your house that was scaring you, you go, please leave. Just get out. Won't you leave us alone? One of those things. Well, imagine if we're going into their place, who's here with us all doing all those things, the provocations? It pisses them off. They don't want people in their place doing that. Yeah. So I think they'll do whatever it takes to get you out. Yeah, I'd like to actually add, I don't often interview myself on this program, but I'm going to add a little to the answer there. Um, I I am really, really glad you mentioned atmospheric conditions because I think too many paranormal investigators haven't thought this through. And a lot of times when the question is posed, uh, why is it that most ghost hunting takes place at night? You know, often the answers are not very well thought out. But I have often said that 
One of the things that we don't recognize or don't give enough credit to is the energy that comes from the sun. During the day, it bombards the earth and it changes the atmospheric energy. It changes everything. And I know this from being in radio as well. Um, you know, you get radio interference from strong sunspots and sun and sun uh, rays. They, they affect every kind of energy on the earth. So when it's on the other side of the earth and we're in darkness on this side of the earth, um, the energy isn't interfered with the way it is during the day. So I think there's something to that. I think that's very, very important. And the other thing I'll say about uh, nighttime investigating is that a lot of ghostly activity relies on subtle light phenomena. And if you're looking for it in the day, it's very, very easy to miss it. Uh, At night, you have a better chance of catching some type of light anomaly. Yeah, that that makes total sense. That makes total sense to me. And and, and we've had that for sure at, at Greystone, Along with, you know, red balls of light spinning mm-hmm. around and and it, during the day. So, but I, I totally agree. The atmosphere, I think, has a huge part of it. And, and same with rain brings in yeah. energy. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's 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 been recorded at Greystone that when those things take place, you can pretty much bet that it's going to ramp up the energy in the house. Clayton, how many stories were you able to include in the book? I, I have in the book, I think it's 230. I had, I, I, the, the editor came to me and said, called my brother and myself up and said, uh, you have 700 pages. I'm like, oh, God. That's a big book. Me. It's a big book. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, you, you can't put that out as 700 pages. I said, okay. So my, my brother Chris said to me, he goes, uh, you got to take some stories out. I said, Really? So I took 50 stories out oh, wow. of the book, and there's still 230-plus stories. 200. That's real. That's what's, that's what's crazy. So 230-plus in the book, plus you took 50 out, and I'm sure there's some that you probably didn't uh, consider including because either you didn't feel strongly enough about the source or whatever it happened to be. So I would say well over 300 stories. And what's the time frame that these stories take place is it from the house's inception in 1928 until current day well remember a very private family they're not going to tell you anything i couldn't find any records about back in the day the earliest i have it is in the 1960s right but you did include the story about the murder suicide from 1929 i mean you still have you have those stories right right but but that's in essence not paranormal activity The, the paranormal activity in the book Really, there's there's a story from the '60s, but the murders and deaths and all that stuff—that's that's all throughout the history of that home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's quite a monumental work, actually. How long did it take you to assemble all of that? It was three years from the moment I I, I said a prayer one night and said, "Please help me come out what I'm supposed to do with this information," and I literally sat up at three in the morning and said, "I got to write this book." And from that day forward, it took almost three years to the day to assemble it to interview. Because also, JV, they did renovate. They've been doing renovation at Greystone, which is wonderful. I'm thrilled because they're bringing it back, nice. as you'd mentioned. Good. And they, the theater that's there was in horrible disarray, and the that the city put a, a tremendous amount of money into it and brought it back to an incredible modern but but still stuck to what it used to look like theater and during that renovation which ramps up the energy because they don't like it when you change things right there were things happening to those construction workers who had no clue that this place was haunted they just show up 
to pull the electrical lines, to cut down some of the, the drywall, all that stuff. And suddenly, they're coming to me and saying, you should talk to Robert. I went, which one is he? Over there. <laughs> and, and his story is he's under the, the um, projection booth, and he can't get these wires through because he's having a horrible, difficult time trying to pull the wires into this booth, which is really small. And uh, he has no room. In it. He's a heavy set guy. And he's going, damn, I can't get these wires. And as he's pulling, he said, I start to feel like somebody standing behind me. He goes, and it's impossible. There's no room in which I'm in the room I'm standing. And he said, then I'm going like, that can't be. So he keeps pulling, goes, God, he's trying to pull. And suddenly he hears in his ear, do you need some help with that? (laughs) And he just freezes. He's telling me all, he just freezes. He goes, he slowly looks behind himself. And then he, because I, I call it the, the, a justification alert within the book. It's like people go, once that happens, they go, no, 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 that couldn't have happened. So that he's yelling out to the guys outside, what did you say? They said, what? What did you, help me with what? We didn't say anything. So that goes on for a while, and finally he goes, oh, my God, something was in here with me. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, you sent me nine audio cuts. We have time mm-hmm. to play one or two. Uh, of the nine that you send me, which would you like to play? Okay, let, let's do uh, the National Treasure. The movie National Treasure was shot there. Okay. And uh, Peter, Peter Devlin, the, the sound guy, uh, sound uh, mixer, who's an Academy Award nominee, uh, left his cart on overnight, literally in the portal. He didn't know it was a portal there, but he left it there. And this is what he caught during that night. So this is just basically an open mic running, a, uh, recording all night long. Nobody's there doing anything. Absolutely. So. Well, first of all, that's there's no mistaking the noise there. I mean, that's pretty pretty dramatic noise. I did almost hear like a humming or, or almost a musical. Yeah, that, that, that's. I asked him about that too, and that's his recorder. Okay. Actually, um, it starts to go into this hum mode, so that really has nothing to do with it. But um, even prior to that, which you couldn't hear on the radio, are footsteps, and then what you hear is what's called layout board, which film companies put on floors to protect it. It's like four by eight sheets of cardboard. And you hear that being thrown against the wall. It slides and hits the wall. And then what you hear are basically camera cases and things being shoved over inside the mansion. Yeah. Again, it is, it's very, very dramatic. And you have um, a complete confidence that there was nobody in the building at the time. Well, I'm I'm the one who ran it. So I, I know there was nobody in there. In fact, when, uh, and, and the other crazy thing about that, J.B., is uh, there were footsteps coming, and then after that sound, there are no footsteps walking away for the right. rest of the night on his recording equipment. Wow. So I should have opened that door in the morning and seen somebody standing there because he didn't walk away, and yeah. there's nobody there. Yeah, so um, so I don't know how, how many hours the quote-unquote night was, you know, that this recording was mm-hmm. running, um, but mm-hmm. what, however long, if it was eight hours, whatever it was, was that the only part of the recording that hadn't had that kind of sound and that kind of noise. That was it. Oh. Cause he ran through, he put it on speed and it went all the way yeah. through and then went, at the one point and then he stopped and went back. And that was the only point. Do you know, how, do you and know what time 12, of night that was? It was 1258 AM. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You want to do another one? Yeah. All right. What other um, one? Which one? 
Do you, do you have one that's, uh, that says uh, uh, gunshot? I have, there might be one or two. I have two of them. Better than the other. Yeah, I have two. Other. I have two of them labeled gunshot. We can play. We can. We can probably okay. play them both. That doesn't. We have enough time. Yeah, one's not as loud, but but it's different nights, and you'll see what I mean. Okay, here's the first one. Gunshot. All right, I'm going to play it again. Where in the house was that recorded, and how was it recorded? Okay, I took a, a little Tascam. A recorder, handheld recorder. Mm-hmm. I put it up on the second floor landing, right in the center, on this pedestal that sits there, and I just let it run for the full night. Overnight. And that was one of, yeah, that was one of many sounds that night, but it was a gunshot. Right. Let me play the other one. This is another recording of a gunshot sound. Sounds very similar. That, that is that the one that's a little um, softer? Yeah, not yeah. as strong. Yeah. yeah, not as strong. Yeah. So, yeah, but that's a different night, different, probably, probably, it might have been even a different year, and it's still happening. Now, you wouldn't hear those every night. I don't know how many times you left a recorder running in the, in the home, but you didn't get those every night. No, I didn't. I didn't get gunshots every night, but... Every single night that I put my recorder in there, and it's been—I was supposed to do it last night, and I, my buddy didn't do it for me because I already left the property. But um, I've done it hundreds of times, and every single night you'll get something on that recorder. It, like I said, it could be uh, a voice off in the distance, mm-hmm. it could be doors closing, it could be when they were doing the renovation, JB, and the theater. I put my recorder in there. The slam in that theater on wood or whatever it was, was so loud, it shut the recorder down. And I had a a, a ranger at that time call me on a separate night and said, "Um, Cleet, something just happened. I said, it's okay, just tell tell me what's going on. She said, I was in the the boys' wing walking toward the theater, and I think the roof fell in. I said, what? She goes, it was the loudest crash I've ever heard. So I went up on the top of the... Uh, the roof to see it didn't it didn't fall in, but something really fell inside that theater. You better check on, on with the guys tomorrow. I said I will. So the next day, I, I talked to the lead guy there and said, "Have you gone in the theater?" He goes, "Yeah, we just walked in." I said, "Is everything okay?" He goes, "Yeah, why?" I said, uh, "No reason, no reason." So they're able to manifest. But but here's the JB. Here's the crazy thing: they're manifesting these sounds for what reason? We're not there for yeah. them to go, I'm going to make the sound and scare you because I'm so upset with what you're doing. Right. What is the point of it? I don't get it. Yeah. Has has yeah. has anybody come in? I know you've had some psychics, some sensitives through, some mediums mm-hmm. through, but has anybody come in and set up a full-blown, sophisticated paranormal investigation of the property? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a man named Rob Ladarsky mm-hmm. uh, who has done tons of investigations. He and I did... Uh, probably four different investigations, uh, and he's very thorough with what he does. Um, well, I, I've never had the SLS uh, in there, which I really wanted to do yeah. before I left. Uh, and, and I've done, we've done investigations with, you know, the, the, the same old stuff, you know, the spirit boxes and the EMS meters and the mel meters and all that stuff, and and, and, and had, you know, some success. Uh, there, there's, you don't have to play this, but there, there are two, with the spirit box, there there's one that I went in the living room one night with my buddy Dan, who's a ranger, and 
It was the first time I ever had the spirit box, and we played it. And I said, if there's anybody here, would you come forward? And literally, you can hear him say, Ned, hmm. Ned steps forward. That's pretty impressive. I'm I'm a little skeptical of the spirit box in general, yeah. um, but I have heard mm-hmm. some things that have impressed me in that one. One too. We're gonna we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to uh, have yeah. you back, Cleek, because we're out of time. But we're certainly not out of story here. Now the book <laughs> is available now. Yeah, so you can get the. Uh, it's called Ghost of Greystone, uh, Beverly Hills, uh, I, dramatic eyewitness accounts, and you can purchase the hardcover uh, through ghostofgreystone.com, and mm-hmm. I'll sign each book. And, and you get a couple other little gifts, and we'll ship it to you for free. You can also go to Amazon if you want, um, and they have an ebook on Amazon, and the audio book is in the makes right now and will be out pretty soon. That's terrific, and, and I love your passion for this, not just for the paranormal part of it, but your passion for this particular property. It sounds like it's an amazing uh, spot, and um, I'm glad there's some restoration going on, because, and I'm hoping that it becomes open to the public, because it sounds like a place that should be shared. It is. It is. I think it will. And it, yes, I have two days left, and it's going to be extremely emotional for me because it's been 22 years at that specific location wow. that I've worked. Wow. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's because you're moving on to bigger and better things or, or something, um, but you'll always have that experience, and I'm glad you shared it with us tonight. Yeah. Thank you so much, J.V. I really enjoyed Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.